It's Wednesday, October 21st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The Justice Department on Tuesday filed an antitrust lawsuit against Google, accusing them of monopolizing the online search and search advertising market. It's no secret that Google is a major player in these areas, but this is just a first step in what could be a lengthy and messy court battle. Kyle Daly, technology editor at Axios, joins us for what the DOJ is alleging and what it could mean for consumers. Next, some initial results from coronavirus testing in New York City schools is showing a surprisingly small number of positive cases. About half of the city's students have opted for hybrid learning, which is helping them keep class sizes small and allow for more social distancing between desks. David Goodman, reporter at the New York Times, joins us for the testing plan aiming to test 10-20% of the school population at least once a month. Finally, many are worried about what some are calling the twindemic, continuing to fight the coronavirus pandemic while also trying to get through the flu season. The flu and COVID-19 share several common symptoms, and it's important to know how to differentiate the two viruses. Karina Zayet, reporter at USA Today, joins us for how to tell the difference. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The government does not enforce the antitrust laws to enable competition. We could lose the next wave of innovation. Joining us now is Kyle Daly, technology editor at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Kyle. Thanks for having me. The Justice Department has filed an antitrust lawsuit against Google. They're accusing them of using anti-competitive tactics to monopolize the online search game and, and beyond that, the advertising market when it comes to online advertising. You really can't make any bones about it. Google is a behemoth in this playing field. They dominate just about every step of it. But what is the Justice Department alleging in this suit? This is pretty indisputable stuff, right? I mean, when you think of search, you think of Google. I mean, there is uh, Microsoft Bing. There's some other alternatives, but, you know, they're pretty thinly used. The DOJ points out in the suit that Google controls about 88% of what it calls general search, which is, you know, searching the open web, searching Google Maps, searching for general information. That's not like, hey, I'm on Amazon and I want to search this closed platform for a specific product. And the challenge with bringing antitrust cases against these big tech companies is that a lot of them, like Google, you know, they're free to use. There isn't really a clear, clean, observable consumer harm where it's like prices went up because of your monopoly. That's bad. We're going to crack down on you. You know, there are no prices for the consumer. So they have to sort of do two things here. One is define a market that's being monopolized, which can be kind of challenging itself. So, you know, what you first have to do is establish, okay, here's something where Google clearly has a monopoly. And that is, as you say, online search. And then B, it's causing harm. So what DOJ is saying the harm is, is really to competition or sort of would-be competition that Google has used its position and that it uses agreements that it makes with Apple, uh, with wireless carriers, with Samsung and other companies that actually make phones that run Android to lock it in as the default search engine on your smartphone or sort of through your carrier or on your web browser. And then it uses that to achieve this market dominance and shore up its market dominance. And then that's sort of this self-fueling thing where the more ubiquitous Google is, the better its product 
becomes because it can feed the engine with more data and it just sort of breaks away from the competition. It's definitely there. You know, you think of things like Kleenex or Xerox, you know, those are the brand names for whatever the things that they kind of represent. Now you don't hear somebody say, Hey, go Bing that you people say, go Google that. I mean, it's a product that we know and everybody uses all the time. What does Google say in response to all of this? Because I just reading some of it, they, you know, they said, well, our product is just so good that that's why people like to use it. And they have the other options and they just don't. Yeah. I mean, that's why this is such an interesting case. And that's why, you know, we kind of expect to continue seeing antitrust cases possibly brought against some of these big tech companies, particularly Facebook, but also Amazon, possibly Apple, that there's a high likelihood that regardless of which party is in power, we're going to keep seeing this. So they say exactly what what you said in response. They say they wouldn't use the word monopoly, but they sort of cop to monopolizing the search market. But they say that's just because we're that good. You know, the other options are out there. You are free as a consumer to choose them. You're free to change the default on your phone so that it's searching Bing or Google or DuckDuckGo. You can do the same thing on your browser. People stick with us. This is you know, Google talking because we, we just have the best search engine and we're not deliberately taking any action to prevent competition. Yeah. You know, they say these these same arrangements that they make with Apple to be the default in Safari. Um, they say, you know, the other guys are totally free to do that. And if they had a better product, then maybe they would have more more of these agreements like we have. One of the things I noted in your article and a bunch of other places, too, is that antitrust lawsuits move really slowly. You had some examples one against Microsoft beginning in 97. It took five years. There was another one that began in the 70s against IBM that took 13 years. So this could take a long time. This is just kind of the first step. What's the ultimate end game on, on behalf of the Justice Department to break up Google even more? Or, or you know, what's the, what's the end game for it? They're pretty ambiguous about what exactly they want. They say, you know, enjoin Google against doing this kind of thing in the future. So they want the court to do something to stop Google from engaging in these same behaviors. And then they raise the possibility of structural remedies, which, you know, in non-legalese generally would mean, yeah, breaking up Google. So say forcing it to sell off its search advertising business or its entire advertising business or, you know, probably not sell off, but at least spin off, you know, break off into into a separate company or its search business period. That's the kind of thing that we'd be thinking about when we talk about structural remedies. Now, is that going to happen? (laughs) (laughs) This is pretty untested stuff. You know, there will be appeals. This is going to be a long, drawn-out thing that could very well end up in the Supreme Court, you know, a decade from now. So there's not going to be any kind of quick resolution unless there's some smaller fix. Um, You know, Google can make some agreement that will uh, get the DOJ to sort of call things off and settle. You know, and, and what that looks like or if that's even going to be an option, that's just sort of something we'll have to see play out over the coming year. Kyle Daly, technology editor at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much.
they've done about three or four days of testing that we have the data for. And what we've seen is that the rates are not any different in schools than they are anywhere else in the city. And in fact, compared to hotspot locations in the city right now, they're lower. And what that signals, I think, is that some of the fear that had really attended the opening of schools in New York City, you know, just hasn't been borne out. Joining us now is David Goodman, reporter at The New York Times. Thanks for joining us, David. Oh, sure. Thanks for having me. Back to school in the country this year took on many different forms. There was schools that were doing only remote learning. There was schools that were doing some type of hybrid. And then there was these other schools that were doing in-person instruction. In New York City, they were one of these uh, school districts that were trying to do these in-person classes. And right now we have some uh, early data from the city's effort to test a lot of the students and faculty that are running the schools And we're seeing a surprisingly small number of positive coronavirus cases, which is very good news. So, David, tell us what we're learning about this as kids are starting to go back to school. So in New York City, they're doing what they're calling a blended model. So half of the students have opted, or actually half of the families have opted to keep their students at home and do remote learning. And half have opted for in-person classes that are done in a kind of split schedule. So you're in school some of the time and then you're at home for some of the time. And I think what we're seeing now, the data that's come out so far is from the first round of random testing that they've done in a small number of schools. I mean, a small number for New York City. There are about 1,800 schools in New York City's public school system, and they're testing about 50 at a time, which is a lot for any ordinary school system. But here, they've done about three or four days of testing that we have the data for. And what we've seen is that the rates are not any different in schools than they are anywhere else in the city. And in fact, compared to hotspot locations in the city right now, they're lower. And what that signals, I think, is that some of the fear that had really attended the opening of schools in New York City, you know, just hasn't been borne out. Uh, This is a place that had the worst outbreak back in March and April, the most deaths of any part of the United States. And going back to school was seen as a a big risk that uh, the mayor had taken here. And so far, it hasn't proved any riskier uh, going to school than it is doing any other activity in the city, which is to say not risky at this time. At least. Right. So what is the plan in New York? My understanding is that they want to test about 10 to 20 percent of the school population at least once a month. Depending on the location and size of the school, they might want to do more than that twice a month, I've seen. So what's that plan? And then beyond that, when they get a positive test, how do they react? At the moment, the plan is to, like you say, do it once a month. There's the union and others are pushing for them to do it more frequently, primarily because when you talk to public health experts, they'll tell you that once a month is really not enough to actually keep an outbreak from spreading. What it does is tell you, you know, that you have an outbreak happening and so you can sort of act on it. But a, a lot of folks have looked at this and said, really, to be effective at this, they need to test a larger portion of the population, something 25 percent. And they need to do it more frequently. And that's what you see in some places, you know, like small college campuses around the country where they're testing folks twice a week. And that way you really are using the test as a way of sort of intervening and catching someone even before they know that they're sick. So you keep them at home. But right now the city is is moving forward with this and sees this as as the best option. So when they get a positive test and, and they're getting it two ways, they're getting it from this random testing. But short of that, someone who works in a school or a family can go to any number of testing sites in the city and get tested. And they're meant to tell the school when that happens. And, and once they alert the school, the school immediately close down the classroom that the person's in. If it's just one positive test, they'll send everybody home from the classroom, assume everybody had been exposed, and those folks will quarantine for 14 days. And what they'll do is an investigation within the school to find out, you know, where those people have been. 
the design of the program is such that really the students and the teachers for each classroom are meant to stay pretty much within that small group. There's not supposed to be too much sort of cross-pollination to keep these exposures at a minimum. If there's more than two people that are found to be positive in a school and they can't connect them to each other, so they don't know, hey, these two people are both in the class or, hey, this teacher went to the faculty lounge and, and exposed someone else that way, they can't make a connection. Then they'll close the whole school down for a time and while they do an investigation. And if they can't figure out how multiple people are getting sick, they'll keep that school closed for 14 days and assume just everybody is exposed. And that struck a lot of people as overly cautious when it was announced. But in reality, it seems to be working relatively well for the school system. You know, they've been, uh, you know, at the forefront in trying to open a very large school system, being aggressive that way, but then being very conservative on the side of closing down when even a single case emerges in a school population. One of the interesting things about this, though, is for this testing program to work, it really depends on parents consenting to have their kids being tested. So I know that's kind of a hurdle to get over also to get with a school population as big as New York City has to get that many parents to sign off on it has also been an issue. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, right now they have about, I think it's 15 percent. It's changing all the time, but about 15 percent are consented to, to be tested. But what the officials will tell you, and and even some public health officials with the city, is that they really look at the teachers and the staff as the main sort of vector of bringing the disease into the school, bringing the the virus, I should say, into the school. And that all those folks are sort of automatically consenting as part of their job if they want to come to work. And so they're getting over sort of sampled, so to speak, right now. And the city doesn't see that as too much of a problem. They'd like to test the students as well. But as long as they're getting the adults that are in the school, they think they can still stay on top of any sort of emerging outbreak. David Goodman, reporter at The New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thanks again. Yep. When this uh, pandemic started to pick up its pace in March and April, that was during the spring. And most importantly, that was during the tail end of the then current flu season. So now we're marching into this flu season um, with more cases than we had at that time. Joining us now is Karina Zayet, reporter at USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Karina. Yeah, thank you for having me. We're getting into flu season. uh, End of October goes really all throughout January, early February. And a lot of people are concerned about what they call the twindemic, you know, the possibility that the flu and coronavirus are going to be swirling around together and that a lot of people are really going to get sick. So we wanted to talk a little bit about how to tell the difference between the flu and COVID-19. There's a lot of common symptoms that both share. So we wanted to look a little bit into that. So Karina, start us off. Tell us how they're both transmitted because they're basically kind of happens the same way. That's true, Oscar. They're both transmitted the same way basically through respiratory droplets. So uh, whenever a person coughs or sneezes, those respiratory droplets uh, go out and then you can contact uh, the virus by inhaling these droplets or by touching the surface that uh, is contaminated with those droplets. So basically flu viruses, uh, influenza viruses, as well as COVID-19, coronavirus viruses, you can pick them up pretty much the same way. Yeah. And the good thing is that if you're practicing the proper procedures, you know, wearing your mask, washing your hands, the physical distancing, it's going to help limit the spread of both. So make sure to do those things. So let's talk about those symptoms now, because there's a lot of different symptoms that COVID-19 has, but there's a few that are shared, namely the fever, the chills, the shivers, the cough, and then the fatigue. Those are the top three 
that are usually shared and shortness of breath as well. So let's talk about some of those symptoms. Yeah, sure. And I would like also to say that when you experience any of those symptoms, the first thing to do is to contact your doctor. But then uh, there is kind of way to tell, you know, for example, having a loss of taste and smell. This is very characteristic of COVID-19 and uh, it uh, basically never happens uh, with flu. And also uh, shortness of breath is also more characteristic of COVID-19. But then runny nose congestion is something more common for flu. And the cough, if you have a COVID, it's usually more of a dry cough. So that, you know, it's, it's just important to kind of identify the symptoms and how they're coming in. So as you mentioned, contact your doctor, but at least you know kind of which way you're going. How long it takes for these symptoms to appear is interesting too. We know that COVID has this, you know, two to 14 day time period, but the flu comes and goes a lot faster. So uh, usually a person will experience uh, symptoms uh, within the first days of the infection. And so even though there is like a wild range of uh, disease, basically a patient usually recover around 10 to 12 days, they start feeling better. But with COVID-19, as you said, you can develop symptoms as late as two weeks after being infected. And that's what is dangerous about COVID-19. Now, let's talk a little bit about the big concerns that public health experts have And really is that, you know, hospitalizations could go up. You know, a lot of people might come down with COVID-19. A lot of people might come down with the flu. They're going to need to be treated. And they think that it might overwhelm the healthcare system. And on top of that, they do think that it is possible to come down with both at the same time, which could be especially burdensome. Yeah, that's true. And there were actually studies that actually uh, talking about people having both at the same time. So there are recorded cases where people did have both. But yeah, you're right that experts are afraid that we'll have this COVID-19 wave and then we'll have uh, on top of that flu wave and that can overwhelm the health system. So even though for uh, flu uh, hospitalization rate is uh, uh, much smaller, so it's usually 69 hospitalizations for 100,000 people. For COVID-19, is 175 people, and actually recently it, that number got higher up. But if we look just at the last season from October till April, we see that there were approximately from 400,000 to 700,000 hospitalizations, and they were related to flu alone. So imagine uh, COVID-19 on top of that, and that can really stress the healthcare system. And then when you go to the hospital and it's already overwhelmed, you can expect the same level of care. A lot of people think that, uh, you know, we're maybe hitting the peak of a first wave of COVID-19 infections, depending on where you're at. You know, some of the other regions in the country might be getting like the beginning of a second wave or something. So there's a lot yet to go through with all of this. And as I mentioned, people are just concerned that both of these viruses swirling around could overwhelm the system. So we'll have to get through it. It's important to know the differentiators so you know how to go about treatment and all. But either way, if you're getting sick, I think everybody's kind of learning this now. If you're getting sick, stay home, contact your doctor, get better. So hopefully we'll all get through it just fine. Karina Zayetz, reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Oscar. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>